Let me say it again, Happy New Year. Has it been good so far the first five days? It's January, so what happens in January? Every January, people make what? Don't, don't be shy with me. Oh, I don't know what that is. They make resolutions. And one of the resolutions they make is that they're going to get in what? Get in shape. Anyone in here ever make that resolution? Oh, really? <laughs> I'm the only one. <laughs> uh, by the way, that's a great resolution. Never give up, right? But I bet if you're like me and millions of others, you make that resolution and you get a membership at a gym. My son Noah came in the other day and said, I got a membership at a gym, Dad. He's used the jacuzzi four times, but he's, he's going to get there. Seriously, he's used the jacuzzi four times, but he's going to get there. So you get a membership at a gym and you see people that haven't been in a gym for a long time and you see people wearing spandex who shouldn't be wearing spandex. I'm, I'm guilty. Now, I've never wore spandex. It wouldn't be fair to spandex, but I, I do see people wearing spandex that shouldn't be wearing spandex. In another month, they'll be gone and it'll all be back to normal. So here's what I want to do. I want to challenge us this year to make a resolution. This one's, a, I want to say easier. It's not because the world, the flesh, and the devil are against you in this. But practically it's easier because you can stay at home. You can get up, stay in your bed, roll out of bed, get in your chair, prayer, go sit in your chair, despair, whatever it takes. But here's the resolution. Um, read God's word every day. Read God's word every day. And don't go back to normal. My prayer as we start the new year is that we get into God's word daily and stay in God's word daily for a, a lifetime. Let me simplify it for you. Often what happens, you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again, we try and do, um, we try and read through the Bible in a year. We get behind, we get discouraged, the devil tells us we're no good, we give up. Try the two-year Bible reading plan. I've mentioned this numerous times. People have texted me, wrote me, called me, bumped into me in the store. It's real simple. Just Google two-year reading plan. Two-year reading plan. If you were to walk in my office at home right now, you'd see it at the corner of my desk next to my chair of prayer. It sits there with a pen on top. It's two years every day. I check off every day. I read it. I pray before. I read it. I pray after. Make a resolution to get in God's word daily for a lifetime. And, and we're going to start our New Year's resolution of reading God's word daily by kicking off a new series, as you already know, on the gospel of, of Mark. Okay, before we go any further, how about a quick quiz about Mark's gospel? Number one, which list gives the correct order in which the gospels were probably written? The from beginning to last, like which gospel is written first? Is it Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke, Mark, Matthew, John, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, or John, Mark, Matthew, and Luke? What's the answer? Anyone know? C, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. Mark was the first gospel account written. It's the first New Testament book written after the intertestamental period, after the Old Testament. Uh, Mark was most likely written somewhere between 80, 50, and AD 60, between 17 and 27 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Number two, who was Mark's target audience? Was it A, Gentiles slash Romans, B, Jews living in Jerusalem, C, the church in Ephesus, or D, the church in Galatia? Who knows? Shout it out. The answer is A, 
Gentiles and Romans. Mark was written for Gentiles like most in this room. And in particular, Romans. Why? Here's why. Mark is edited differently than the other gospels. I call it the Jim Hall gospel. You say, well, what, what do you mean? The other gospels are very Jewish. There's a lot of story, a lot of parables, a lot of, hey, let's talk. Mark is brief and to the point. If you ever talk with Jim, you're thinking, I better have my points in order. I got to get them out fast, right? Because he's moving hard and fast. That's Mark. It's for a Roman culture that's moving hard and fast. Last question. Mark's gospel was written by the apostle Peter, John Mark, the apostle Paul, an unknown writer. What's the answer? No, it's not A, but A has some similarities. We'll talk about that in a minute. The answer is B. Mark's gospel is written by John Mark. John was his Hebrew name. What What does his name in Hebrew mean? Those of you named John, do you know what it means? Wow, there's not one person here named John. You haven't gone to a bookstore, looked up like a bookmark and found your name on there? My name is Lee, right? You say, what does that mean? Literally, it's Gaelic, bad start, and it means of the valley, of the meadow, calm and serene, right? Okay, John, Mark, John in Hebrew means God is gracious. Mark, Marcus means, you ready for this? I love this, Um, large hammer, He's God's gracious large hammer. He's bringing the heat, but with kindness, right? Mark was from Jerusalem. His father isn't mentioned. He's probably dead. His mother, Mary, owned a house that was used by the church for gatherings. How do we know this? Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, when Peter was released by the angel from prison and he went and knocked on a door, that was Mary's door. That was Mark's mom's door. She may have been wealthy because it says that many were inside praying, indicating a large house. Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. Yes, that Barnabas. So Mark went with Barnabas and Paul on their first mission trip, um, but left early to go back to Jerusalem. He couldn't handle it, so he left early. That made Paul upset. That messed with their relationship, which later was the root of a conflict between Paul and Barnabas, as you can imagine. But 12 years later, Paul refers to Mark as his fellow servant and actually asked him to do some things for him. They restored the relationship. Mark was a disciple of Peter. Peter refers to him in 1 Peter chapter 5 as a son. He traveled with Peter, he wrote for Peter, he translated for Peter. It was probably from Peter that Mark compiled most of his material in this gospel. Meaning that this gospel account comes not just from Mark's perspective, but it comes from an apostolic witness, Peter. Church tradition has it that Mark ended up being the founder and first bishop, the first elder, the first pastor, the church in Alexandria, Egypt, and was later put to death, was martyred by the emperor Nero. Some more interesting thoughts about the gospel of Mark, and I want you to see him because it's going to be a theme throughout the book, which we're going to be in for the next year plus. Number one, Mark focuses more on the works of Jesus and less on his words. Mark records 19 miracles, but only four parables. Interestingly, each of these parables has serving as its key theme. The language that Mark uses is often emotional and often abrupt. In Mark, we read that Jesus sighed deeply. He moved with compassion. He marveled at their unbelief. Uh, he looked around in anger. He, he saw the rich young ruler, and we read this, and Jesus looking upon him, loved him deeply. We don't see that type of language in the other gospels, what we do in Mark's gospel. Number three, 
Mark's gospel, Jesus acts quickly to meet needs. Mark uses the word immediately or straightway 42 times to convey not only a sense of vividness, but excitement and, of course, urgency. Number four, Mark uses the historical, historical present tense over 150 times. You say, oh no, he's going to nerd out on grammar. This is really important. Instead of writing that Jesus came, Mark says this, Jesus is coming. Instead of saying Jesus healed, Mark says Jesus heals. Right? So why does Mark use the historical present tense? Because he wants to emphasize that Jesus did all those things in the past, but he's still doing those things right now in the present. Tim Keller writes in his book on Mark, and I quote, Jesus is not merely a historical figure, but a living reality who addresses us today. Number five, this is really important. Mark is a missionary book. Mark leaves out language that someone living in Rome um, wouldn't understand. He goes out of his way to explain Aramaic words and Jewish Customs. He doesn't assume that the listener knows what's going on. He's very sensitive to the culture around him. Mark is all about making the gospel message accessible to those who are considered, quote unquote, outsiders. I think it's sad. I do. But churches tend to count um, their seating capacity. I think a better metric is to count our sending capacity. Mark is a sending book. Mark's account opens with, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and closes in Mark 16 with go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Lastly, number six, Mark's emphasis is on the last week of Jesus's life. You say, why is that important? Well, the events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ make up 40% of Mark's gospel. Someone has described Mark's gospel as, and I quote, a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Mark wants his reader to know that Jesus was born in order that he may die. He wants us to know that his death was not a tragic accident, but a part of God's plan from the very beginning. Jesus is, is the selfless, selfless servant, but he's also the suffering savior. And Mark wants to make sure, make sure that we know that. All right, let's jump into the Gospel of Mark. Let me give you a big picture overview real quick. Four things. We're gonna break down these 11 verses into four parts. Number one, the beginning of the good news. Number two, John the preparer. Thirdly, we'll look at John the Baptist, the proclaimer. And then lastly, the baptism of Jesus. All right, let's start with the beginning of the good news. Mark chapter one and verse one. Mark says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles or Bible apps. It's interesting that Mark starts with the launch of Jesus' formal ministry, unlike Matthew and Luke, who begin with the birth of Jesus. Now, the word beginning here can refer to um, the cause or head of something. Jesus is before all things. As John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. Beginning can refer to the start of something like a, a new road. We're beginning to build a new road. But I think it's a deeper level that Mark is, is telling us that he's about to begin something brand new. Underline the word good news. The good news means the gospel. So good news means that God has provided for salvation for everyone through the, the life and the death 
and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. We've talked about this before. This is really important. There is no good news unless we understand the bad news. That's the problem, right, in our culture today. Give me the good news. Everything's great. You're great. I'm great. Everything's great. Just give me happy. Well, we can't understand fully good news unless we understand bad news. And the bad news is that each one of us in this room from the beginning of time until the end of time is totally corrupt in every part of our, our nature. That's the bad news. The Bible says in Romans 3 that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. There's nothing within us that's worthy of of God's approval. Just look at human history. Look at our own individual life. Sin comes easy to us. Sin that hopelessly separates us from God. Sin that began in the garden with Adam and Eve. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. If we were to move throughout the Old Testament, we would see that God was at work relentlessly, purposely, intentionally, working through history, working through promises and covenants and laws and sacrifices and kingdoms and nations, working through real people in real situations, in real time, prophets and kings and queens and shepherds and ordinary people like you and me. Throughout the Old Testament, God is working to, to restore what sin has removed from us. You say, what is that? A relationship with God all of which is pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. So Mark invites us in to God's story with these words, the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Malachi was the last book written in the Old Testament, and after 400 years of political, religious, cultural, economic oppression and persecution and turmoil and uncertainty, years of of God's people waiting, God, where's this? we got to hear some good news. Waiting for God to move, what is he going to do? In the brokenness of where God's people were living, in the brokenness of where we live life, how welcome is, is good news? As I was writing this, I thought about this. Perfect time in this season. It reminds me of the hymn we've been singing all during the Christmas season. It's a hymn of expectation. This is what what the people were longing for, yearning for, in that, that intertestamental, that 400-year period. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, sh- shall come to you, O Israel. Come, come. Mark's gospel opens with the beginning of God again, visibly moving in history. The prophetic prophetic voice is heard again, announcing good news. And by the way, this good news isn't just some new philosophy. There's lots of those. Or some new religious insight to grab onto. The good news is the long-awaited Messiah, God in human flesh. Jesus. Good news is the theme of Mark's gospel. Secondly, this morning, Mark introduces us to the preparer, John the preparer. John's first job, this is John the Baptist, was to prepare the way for Jesus. Mark tells us that Isaiah predicted exactly what 
what John would do. Actually, Isaiah and Malachi. What follows is a composite quotation from Malachi and Isaiah, Mark chapter one and verse two. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John the Baptist is God's messenger sent ahead of, or literally, I love this, the literal translation is sent before the face. He's sent before the the, the face. Even though John ministered in the wilderness, he was highly visible among the people. We'll see why in just a minute. His message was also very audible. Twice we, we read that he came to prepare the way of the Lord. In ancient times, the, the king literally had preparers, people who would prepare his way, his advance team. They'd go ahead to make sure the roads were passable. They would prepare um, bridges and they would reduce twists and turns. They functioned like civil engineers. They, they made sure there were, there were no obstacles. The king was coming. The king was gonna bring some good news and they wanted to make sure the king could get there. Last fall, I was out walking Lake Fayetteville. I mean, I walked it since, but it was last fall when this happened. And, and as I was walking, there was a woman in front of me. And I'll be honest, I was trying to catch up to her, but I couldn't. She was going too fast. And uh, all of a sudden, she stopped. And she leapt off the path suddenly onto the dirt. And then she turned back at me. And I'm now about 15 feet from her and I'm, I'm doing my thing, I'm listening to whatever and she's waving her hands frantically and she's yelling, stop, stop, stop. And so I kind of glide into this stop. I don't stop immediately, which wasn't the wisest thing. And I find myself literally five feet from, from this. Now not the top thing, which I think is a leaf, but the middle thing. And so I did what every good person does now in in the midst of um, danger that could end your life. I took a picture, right? (laughs) Do you you know what that is? I sent this picture to a snake expert. That's a herpetologist. I had to look that up. In our church. And he said, and I quote, because he sent me a text, Lee, that is an eastern copperhead and is definitely venomous. If you step on it, it would require a hospital visit. While I was oblivious, the woman in front of me was keeping the way, the path, clean and clear. John the Baptist was like that. He didn't want anything in the way of the one who is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. The preparer was announcing to the people that the king was coming, so they better get ready to meet him. How are you doing with that? I pulled out of my driveway this morning and I was heading here to church and I, I noticed near where I live some, some people were out and about as early and I thought, I, I don't even know them. How am I doing at preparing the way for them to meet the, the king? And I begin to justify, well, there are two houses down. Well, you know, they could be believers. Well, you know, like we do. Like good grief. I'm a preparer. How am I, how am I doing at that? I 
The preparer was announcing to the people that the king was coming, so they better get ready to meet him. This is interesting. The world, the word wilderness refers to, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Jim's going to really talk about it next week. But it refers to the, the rolling badlands that make up a desolate area of barren, chalky soil covered with pebbles, broken stones, and rocks. Let me spiritualize here for just a second, but I thought to myself as I was writing this, what a metaphor for the barren hearts of people like you and me. John's job was to prepare half, half-hearted people for King Jesus. John prepared, but he also, he, he proclaimed. Thirdly, we see John the Proclaimer, verse four, enjoy this with me, it's fun text. It's, it's convicting, but fun text. John, Mark chapter one and verse four, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness and he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem um, went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is the fun part. Um, this is the in-your-face part, set before your face. I love this. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than, than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with, with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, a, a picture of future salvation in Acts chapter 2 as well when the Spirit of God would come and live inside every believer. After 400 plus years of waiting, John is the renewal of God speaking through his prophets. It was John who called God's people to repentance, to change their hearts. And the people responded. Not, not only did they respond, but they responded in mass. From Judea and Jerusalem, they left everything and they went out to the Jordan, to the wilderness, to hear John preach. Not only that, but to be baptized. The message John spoke touched uh, the deepest need of their lives. He spoke of the forgiveness of their sins, the restoring of our relationship with God, which is our, our deepest need. Isn't that some of what brings us here this morning? Isn't that what we struggle with in our, our own lives? To hear God's voice? To wonder if he'll, he'll do something new. And that's why, I, if I'm not preaching, I could be out of town, I can be out of country, I can be right here. And I'm like, God, do something new in my life. It's one of the reasons I take notes. I'm just taking notes, I'm writing, okay, I'm praying, Holy Spirit. I'm not like, it's hard because I, I, do, I do teach and preach for a living. I've done it for 30 years. So I have to fight that temptation to be like, I could have said that better. <laughs> you know, that's what happens. And I'm like, Holy Spirit, I need to hear your voice. I need something new and fresh in my life. I can't do this without you. I want you to see this behind me. This is important. The highway to heaven is paved, I should add this, only over prepared hearts. Hearts that are repentant hearts. Hearts that are soft. I'm amazed at the amount of believers. They're just so hard. They're like, I'm not going to forgive. I'm not letting go of that. I'm holding on to that bit. I'm like, what? You have the spirit of the living God living inside of you. And you're like, no? How dare us? How dare us?
God seems distant in your life. Maybe you, maybe me, we need to do a little road work of repentance. What a beautiful word that is. I don't like that word. That word gives Christians a bad name. There's always some dude with a long beard. The end is near, repent, holding a sign. It's a beautiful word. It's called, you get a second chance. And a third, and a fourth, and a thousandth chance. What a beautiful word that is. You are heading towards destruction. Not only hell, but this basic sin that separates God's like, no, no, turn, turn, turn. That's repentance. Please turn. You're still alive. To repent means that we turn from our sin and we turn to God. It means we personally acknowledge the hopelessness and the horror of our sin and we choose at a heart level that we no longer want to go there, not even entertain the ideas of what that sin might be like. So instead of turning to sin, we turn to God and we keep turning to God. By faith, trusting God to forgive us and cleanse us from our sin. Why? Because the only hope of being free from the bondage and consequences of our sin, this is it, y'all, the only hope is God. Oh, no, no, no. I, I've been listening to Tony Robbins. Great. Don't recommend it. Ain't going to work. Oh, but man, I'm working on my master's. Right now, I'm pretty smart. Yeah, really? How long is that going to last? Well, yes, I've, I got family money. I got money. Is that meeting your needs? I finally met the woman of my dreams. Give it a little time. <laughs> or the man of your dreams. I'm going to keep it equal. <laughs> the only hope of being free from the bondage and consequences of our sin is God. That's why John preached repentance because it's the place where God, God, God meets me at my deepest need. Repentance is when we respond to God and know his forgiveness and reorientation of our lives. I'll never forget, I, I became a follower of Jesus at 17, and I won't go into details. You've heard it too much, but I was a mess, and I don't want to give those details anyways. And about a week after I gave my life to Jesus, I'll never forget, my mom walked into my room, and she said, she wasn't a believer at the time, she said, what's different about you? And I said, my life has been reoriented because of repentance. I didn't say that. I didn't know. I wish. <laughs> I'm like, I got saved. What's that? Saved from what? And I did the best I could, stumbling and bumbling through the gospel. And God, by his grace, eventually saw fit to bring my mom to saving faith. God reoriented my life. John is preparing. He's proclaiming. John is baptizing. Last point this morning. The baptism of Jesus. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. So he headed that direction and, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven 
being torn apart and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Better translation would be fluttering gently. That's interesting. And then a voice came from heaven. And this is, this is intense. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I, I'm, I'm well pleased. There are at least two significant things um, that we need to talk about. Before we get there, I need to say this. Matthew's gospel records that John actually tried to refuse to baptize Jesus. John was like, no, no, you, you need to, reminds you of, of Peter, right? When washing Jesus' feet. John's like, no, 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 I, you need to baptize me, Jesus. Jesus is like, no, 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 you baptize me. So this begs the question, some of you are probably thinking this, and this is fair. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? What sins did he have to repent of? Who was he, he going to trust as his savior? I, I baptized me in the name of me? Like, what? What's going on here? Two significant things that are happening that we need to be aware of. First of all, Jesus was baptized for identification. This is the official ministry handoff between John the forerunner and Jesus the Messiah. This is also the beginning of of Jesus' public ministry that will lead to the cross. So Jesus, get this, came in the world, into the world, and was baptized to identify with sinners so he could save sinners. All those people had come out into the wilderness, they'd come out bound up in their sins, and they responded to John's message with repentance, and with their outward baptism, they're identifying themselves with the inward devotion and submission to God. So what we're seeing here is Jesus' public identification that he's come to stand He's come to stand where we should stand to receive what we deserve and in return give us a free gift, the gift of God's grace. So first we see that Jesus was very simply, was baptized so he could identify with you and me. Secondly, we see that he was baptized because it was was a part of his inauguration. The text tells us that as Jesus came out of the water, I love this, he saw heaven being torn apart. Um, This phrase, heaven being torn open or torn apart, comes from the Greek word schizo, which we get our word schism or division, meaning literally to tear apart. The same verb is used later in Mark to describe, you ready? The temple curtain being torn apart from top to bottom, when Jesus said it is finished, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, a schism took place. That curtain was torn apart. I want us to notice that the heavens are not delicately or carefully opened, but they're ripped open. Imagine a bolt of lightning piercing the sky above your head and the sky opening up in a dramatic fashion. You say, Lee, hold on, what what does it matter? What does it matter if heaven is gently opened up or dramatically ripped apart? This is what I think. And and a few other scholars, which I'm not one, but I, I lean hard into them. The difference is very important. What is carefully opened can be carefully closed again. But what is ripped apart can't be easily put back together. 
Mark is telling us that when Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism, all heaven broke loose. And next week, when Jesus is tempted, and this isn't coincidental, all hell will break loose. So, heaven being torn apart means that God is about to speak and it indicates that what's happening on earth is by divine design. God is gonna speak, inaugurating the ministry of his son. But before God speaks, something interesting happens. It's really interesting. The spirit of God descends, flutters gently, so you have this contrast. Heaven is ripped apart. And the spirit of God gently descends and falls upon Jesus. You say, well, Lee, what? Why is this so important? And I was re- I'm right now in my two-year Bible reading plan. I'm in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, you go from judgment to, to prophecy. To, I mean, it goes back and forth. But often what you see in, in Isaiah is messianic prophecies. So this is why it's important. Take a look at these following passages. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit, verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord will gently, same language, rest on him. Isaiah 42 and verse 1, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, you ready? I will put my capital S, Holy Spirit on him. Isaiah chapter 61 in verse 1, the spirit of the, capital S, Holy Spirit, sovereign Lord, um, is, is on me. The coming of the spirit in this way was a clear picture of the prophecies regarding the coming of Messiah. Spirit empowerment was the defining characteristic of the chosen servant of God. This doesn't mean that Jesus was without the spirit prior to this time, but it's given here as a clear statement of divine endorsement and anointing. Now, Jesus is visibly equipped and commissioned to undertake his messianic mission. The presence of the spirit identifies Jesus as the spirit-empowered Messiah. But there's more. God speaks. Verse 11 says, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. I want us to see this, this is really important. In this moment we have a clear picture of the Trinity. It's an example for us. Jesus has the spirit of God resting upon him as the Father speaks a blessing over him Jesus' obedience results in the Father's affirmation, picturing the roles of the triune Godhead. I want you to see this behind me. This is really important. The Father decrees. The Son obeys. The Spirit empowers. The Father decrees, the Son obeys, and the Spirit empowers. By the way, that's a good creed for us to live by, isn't it? God decrees with his word. We obey it. Holy Spirit empowers and lives through us. The Father decrees, the Son obeys, the Spirit empowers. 
But the main point of these words is that the father is affirming his love and his pleasure in the son. These are words of endorsement and affirmation and inauguration. Again, Jesus doesn't fit John's baptism because his baptism isn't about repentance. It's about the inauguration of his ministry. It's the moment in Jesus' life where he is identified as the son of God, empowered by the spirit and loved by the father. And this Trinitarian ministry will characterize the next three years of his ministry. The preparation was over. The Messiah had come. The long-awaited Messiah affirmed by the Father and empowered by the Spirit was in their midst. He's the one. Now, here's the question. What are they going to do about it? Of course, the real question is this. What are we going to do about it? At this time, I'd like the worship team to start heading back up. If you're on the prayer team, could you come up as well? Do me a favor, if you don't mind. You certainly don't have to, but I'm gonna ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes. And This is your private altar where you sit. If you wanna come forward and meet with someone on the prayer team or just come forward and make declarations and hey, Praise God. I only have just kind of two takeaways here, and I'm done. I think the text demands it. The first one is this. Today is the day to repent and receive forgiveness of your sins. Let me say it again. Today is the day to repent and receive forgiveness of your sins. Heaven is open to you. This, the way has been made straight and clear. It's time to repent and have your sins forgiven. You see, Lee, what does that look like? You can do it in your seat. You can walk up, meet with someone on the prayer team. You can call the office and connect with any one of our staff. You may have a friend who brought you, a parent who brought you. It means when this beautiful message of repentance comes that we say, Lord, I'm ready. I want to turn from my sin and turn to you. I want to reorient my life to the life you have for me. I realize that a great chasm has occurred, this thing called sin, and it separates me from you. And there's no other way for me to get to you to restore the image unless I repent and put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. There's no Jesus and, it's only Jesus. That's my first admonition to you. You can't do it through your family. You can't do it through osmosis. It's personal. It's between you and God. Here's my second admonition for the day. If you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, then baptism is your next step. It's, it's right there. It's not the River Jordan, which is pretty cool, by the way, but that's, that's pretty cool too. This is our River Jordan. If you know and love Jesus, and for some reason you, I don't know why, 
you've put it off. We just don't see that in the Bible. We want to be men and women of the Bible. And when we see people come to know Jesus, immediately they're baptized. Jesus commanded it. So we don't say, yeah, but do I, and what about? No, we just say, sir, yes, sir. I need to get baptized right now, right this second. I'm a follower of Jesus. Number one, today is the day to repent and receive forgiveness of your sins. What a day that will be. What a new year that will be. Number two, if you know and love Jesus and you haven't been baptized, then today is the day of baptism. We've got towels. We'll take all your electronics off and we'll make it happen right now. Just come up and talk to myself or someone else on the prayer team or someone on staff. We can do it now. We can do it at the end of next service. Let me pray. Father, what an amazing passage. Good news has come. Good news has come. May our hearts be prepared to receive it. As believers, may we daily live lives of repentance so that we may walk fully with you and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, for those who aren't believers, I pray that today, right now, this moment would be the day of salvation, the moment of salvation that repentance would take place. Thank you for Messiah. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that in so many lives in this room, you have sent preparers who have prepared the road for us, moms, dads, pastors, friends, coworkers. They've heralded the coming of the king, and we say thank you, God. Help us to be heralds of King Jesus. And we thank you for baptism that you allow us to immediately identify as followers of King Jesus. The old Lee is gone. The new Lee has come up out of the waters of baptism with a massive sea on my chest, Christ follower. We love you, Father. We pray that this new year is the best new year because it's a year spent trying to produce fruit for you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for Jesus, and we ask all this in his name. Amen.